We've been in the midst of a series of Christ Above All, sermons out of the book of Colossians. Uh, we are in Colossians chapter 3. This morning we're just going to do verse 14. We touched on verse 14 last week, uh, God's command to put on love. But uh, this verse, as well as some of these others, it seems to me that we need to drill down a little bit, a little bit and give some more content to it. And, uh, and as we come at this verse this morning, we'll come a little bit differently to it as, uh, as we come back around to this command uh, and fill it with all that comes before the command. So we're in Colossians 3, verse 14. Hear then the Word of God. And above all of these, put on love. Love binds everything together in a perfect harmony. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that your word comes to us not just as information, but as a tool, as the means, as a medium by your spirit for transformation, that as your word captures our minds and our hearts and your spirit brings it to life, we may be different. And Father, we pray this morning that we would have new power to put on love and to see our whole souls bound together by its power in every way. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so God commands us as he's been going through this passage, we've been talking about sanctification, putting off the old self with its ways, and we've had lists of what those things are, and putting on the new self, and what that means, starting back in verse 12, putting on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with each other. If you have a complaint against someone, forgive each other, even as The Lord has forgiven you, so we must forgive. And it's above all of these virtues, he says, that we are to put on love. That all these other virtues should be loving virtues, a loving kindness. That we bear with each other in love. Forgive each other because we love each other. And that love binds all of these things together in in a single character that is like Christ. 1 John 4, 8, we're told that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Before the world was made, God is love. He's always been love. God is love in Trinity. From eternity past, He is a perfect community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, knowing and loving each other in a, in a community, a perfect harmonious, happy community from all eternity. And so God exists as this community, this trinity of love from from all eternity. And in Himself, He is full, complete, satisfied. Is an uncreated fullness of being, a fullness of love. And it's out of this fullness that God decides to create. And it's important that we understand that it is out of fullness that God creates and not out of need or because he lacks something. Sometimes you hear people say that God needed someone to love, so he made us. 
But the scripture says that God is love from eternity past. Without us, beside us, if we never existed, God is still love and he didn't need anyone. It is out of the fullness. Creation is the overflow of God's abundance, not an expression of his need. God has no needs in that respect. So it's not out of need, but out of fullness. The God who knows all things created us. And he created us, and when he created us, God in his fullness, creating the world out of his fullness as an overflow, he creates us, and he knew us, and he knew that when he created us, that the world would not persist as he made it, very good, but there would be a fall, that we would fall away from that goodness into sin, and the world would be plunged into darkness. And so often I've had the conversation, and, and it comes up when you think about these kind of things, the question arises, then why did God create the world? If he knew that it would fall, if he knew there would be sin, if he knew that it would be what it has become with school shootings and these kind of things, if he knew that it would go this direction, why did God create? And the answer that the Bible gives is that God not only contemplated the world and mankind in its fallenness that it would fall. But he looked beyond the fall. He looked beyond in his own purposes, in his own intentions, in, in a redemption. When it says Jesus endured the cross, it was for the joy that was set before him. It was something that was before him, something that would be created through his death and his resurrection and the outpouring of his spirit in the church. God creates knowing that he would redeem a people in Christ. That his purpose from before creating and through the fall into the other side was that he would create a people for his own possession. Because on the other side of world history, from creation to its end, on the other side of it, what God creates and comes out the other side is the church, is you. God creates the world to gather a people for his own possession. And so in the very plan of God to create the world knowing it would fall, in the very plan of God then is the plan to send his son. That God the son would come and become incarnate. That he would come to save a people, to redeem a people through his death. 1 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says this, He, Jesus, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now let's just pause on the foreknown there. There are those who sometimes think of this foreknowledge, foreknown, is just God you know, looking ahead and knowing something ahead of time. But with God, it never means that. It can never mean that. Because, because He is God. And it says when Jesus is foreknown before the foundations of the world, God the Father didn't look down and said, oh, the Son's going to go and die for the world. You know, the Son is going to, he doesn't just take knowledge of Jesus. He, it's the same as saying that he chose and he sent Jesus. He, Jesus, was foreknown, planned by God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. But he was made manifest in these last days. Right? In the fullness of time, the Son is born and He comes. But it's before the foundation of the world that this plan was made, that He would come. 
for us who would believe. Matthew 13, 35, this we don't have a slide for, I don't think. <clears throat> Matthew 13, 35, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Uh, and Jesus is talking about his coming and, uh, and the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus says, this was to fulfill what the prophets had said. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundations of the world. Right? The coming of the kingdom. The coming of Christ. That which has been hidden since the foundations of the world. The plan of God being outworked in time. And so Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, he says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Even as He was foreknown and planned to come in Him, He chose, it says, us. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. And then He says, in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons and daughters in Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will from before the foundations of the world. In love, it says, He's going to make us His children. And so what all this says is that before the world was made, God set His love on us. It was in love that He chose it says, and predestined us to be holy and blameless in the Son. Before the world was made, the everlasting covenant of love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determined to save us as a people for Himself. And so in 1 Peter 2.9, this is why He says things like, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people. For his own possession. And you see this. A people for his own possession. Is at the very purpose of the creation of the world. You are a chosen race. So that you would ultimately be. His special possession. Why does God create the world? Knowing that it will fall. Because in Christ. He would have a redeemed people. And when Christ redeems us, he, he doesn't take us back to Eden. We're not a people restored to Eden. Sometimes there's that, you know, we return to Eden kind of a scenario. But we don't go back to Eden. We are for eternity a people redeemed in Christ. The body of Christ. That's not Eden. That's something entirely different and something entirely new. That He is our head and we are His body, that He is our Lord and Savior. We are connected to Him in an indivisible way throughout eternity. We are the body, the bride, the people that are in Christ forever and ever. And this happens on the other side of the fall. And it's all part of His plan. In other words, He did it. He created the world to save and to create the church, you and I. To just think for a moment of what it is that we are a part of. As God in the planning of the world. Ages upon ages and eons ago planned you. And us together today. Here bound together. In faith in Christ and the presence and power and the outpouring of his spirit. A people for the praise of his glory belonging to him and in Christ. For all ages. 
This is why in verse 12 when he says, put on the new self, he says, do it. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy in love. He chose us that we would be holy and blameless in Christ. And he says, so it is as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved from before the foundations of the world. Put on, he says, the new self that he is creating us to be in Christ. And so the whole story of the Bible and the whole story of the world is the whole story of God's redeeming love. We talk about redemptive history, that thread that runs through not only all of Scripture, but all of history to this day and to the end, that thread of redemptive love, the scarlet thread, a redemptive history, a history of God's work and plan in the world, that there would be a chosen seed, that there would be a people that runs through the thread of the world, and on the other end, from every tribe and nation, people and tongue on the earth, he would have a people for the praise of his glory. And so the cross of Jesus Christ is quite literally the pivot point of history. Because there, the the eternal, everlasting love of God is manifest in time at the cross where love and mercy meet. Where he comes to save and the price is paid to purchase the souls of his people. God's love is ultimately measured. We see it measured then by this Christ, by this sacrifice, by this pivot point of history, by the cross, where that love is manifest in time. God's love is ultimately measured by the sacrifice he was willing to make to save and to sanctify us. It was in love that he predestined that we should be holy and blameless and adopted as children. And what price would he pay? For us to be his. Ephesians 5.25. If you're looking for application. I would say husband. Here's the first one. You have one of the highest callings on the planet. Right? He says in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands love your wives. Love them. Love them. How am I supposed to love them? As Christ. Love the church. And gave himself up for her. The measure of his love. He loved her. His bride, the church. He loved her from all eternity. He loved her. Set his love on her for and through the ages and, and in the fullness of time was manifest. That he would give himself up for her. And pay the blood price for his people. He was willing to die for her, to suffer for her, to lay down his life for her. Husband, what does that mean for us? Something deep and real, right? It's a high calling to contemplate what it means for Christ to have loved us and for us to love our wives. Now, wives, you don't get off the hook, and we'll see here in a minute at the beginning of Ephesians 5 and verse 2, he gives that same exact command to everybody. But when he gets to husbands, he gives it to you in particular. But it really is all of our calling to love one another even as Christ has loved us. The measure of his love that he was willing 
to die for us. And we see the measure of his love in the unloveliness and unworthiness, the sinfulness of those he loved. Right? The measure of his love to, to cross that gap. Right? In Romans 5, verses 8 and 10, it says this, God showed his love for us. He showed how vast and amazing and wonderful it is. He shows it to us in this, that when we were still sinners, undeserving, unmerited, unlovable, uh, not beautiful, not whatever you want to put over there. This is how he shows his love. When you were like that, Christ died and laid down his life and shed his blood for us. Well, we were his enemies, and that's what it means when we were still sinners. That is, when we were his enemies, he died for us and he reconciled us to the Father by his blood. Not only not deserving his love and sacrifice, but actually deserving his judgment and his wrath and giving himself to bear that judgment and wrath for us. In other words, Jesus did the greatest thing possible for the least deserving of people. He loved the unlovable. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us from all eternity, his destining, adopting love, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, in our sins, in his enemies, he made us alive in Christ. Jonathan Edwards says, Never was there Love that fixed upon an object so much below the lover. Love is more remarkable and wonderful when there is every distance between the lover and the beloved. And we know that that for us is is an intimate, infinite gap between the creator and the creature. The Holy One who is light and in whom there is no darkness. And those who love darkness because their deeds were evil. The measure of his love in crossing this infinite gap and paying the ultimate price. And we see the measure of his love in the glory of the one who is willing to die for us. The infinite worth of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 says this, Knowing, and we should know, that we were ransomed, redeemed, saved from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or spot. And when he uses that metaphor, he's like a lamb without blemish or spot. He is saying he is the Holy One the blameless one, the righteous one, that this is the one, it is his blood, the blood of the Holy One, God the Son incarnate for us. It was not with perishable things like gold and silver, the treasures that drive men mad and literally have shaped history and our wars over these these treasures. He says it's not with perishable treasures like these things, but with the imperishable treasure beyond the worth of anything the world has to offer. 
the imperishable blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. John Owen said he loves us. He so loves us, so values his saints as that having from eternity undertaken to bring them to God, he rejoices his soul in the thought of it and he pursues his design through heaven and hell, life and death, suffering and doing, in mercy and in power. And he ceases not until he brings it to perfection. From eternity past, he chose us. In time, the Son was manifest to shed His blood, the imperishable, holy blood of the Lamb, to purchase our souls for Himself as a bride for all eternity. God's plan spanning the ages and being worked out according to the purpose of His will in and through history to that day. Romans 8, 31 and 32, after saying similar things, Romans 8, those he foreknew, he planned, he, and those he predestined, he calls, those he calls, he justifies, those he justifies, he glorifies, and he is working all things together for the good of those who love him, which is all to say the same things I've been saying. And then he says this, what should we say to these things if God is for us from before the foundations of the world? Who or what in time, in heaven or hell, could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but paid the price. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him give us all things? It would be worth it to spend part of your afternoon answering those questions in your head. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God has loved me like that, who can be against us? If He's given His own Son, what would He withhold from me? He has given the greatest thing the universe, in, in a sense, has to offer. God gave us Himself in the person of His Son. To die for us. He didn't just give us him, but to bring us and adopt us into his own family. If he did not spare his son, what good thing would he withhold from you? That we should ever doubt his goodness and his love toward us. It would be worth it to spend some time just contemplating that and settling that in your soul. Settling it in the deep places that God is for us from all eternity. Set his love upon me and gave his own son and his blood as a blood price to purchase my soul. How will he not with him give me all things? Yea, even life eternal with him. For there are pleasures in his presence forevermore. If he is eternally and unalterably for us. See, if we comprehend these things. And if we abide in his love. If we dwell in his love. If this is the place out of which we live. Right? And our lives come from. You know, we are free indeed. This is what he says. 1 John 4, 18. He says this. There is no fear in love. Perfect love. 
And that's the love we're talking about. Perfect love casts out fear. Right? Fear has to do with punishment, but Jesus bore our punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Love drives out fear and it sets us free. Free to do what? To love. Right? Because then God says, and this is where we've come full circle around to where God says, no, no, he commands, put on love. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on love. It binds everything together. The crowning virtue of our souls that binds all other virtues together. It makes us truly like Him as His people. And I understand He's not telling you to dig deep when He says put on love. He's not telling you to dig deep, you know, and fully realize your, your personal potential as a loving person. You know, you really got to just dig. He's not saying, He's not saying, He's saying put it on as something that comes to us from, from outside of us. It's not something that, that is natural to us. It's not our natural bent. It's not where we go. It is a fruit of His Spirit. It is the first fruit of His Spirit. And to put on is to have the fullness of the Spirit within. Romans 13, 14, he says this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Put on love. Put on every virtue that is His character. By the fullness of His Spirit and the supplies of His grace. John 15, 19, he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Even just to contemplate this afternoon on that. How has the Father loved the Son? Right? This divine love from all eternity that is God Himself in Trinity from all eternity, where the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and there is this community of love that is the divine nature and the divine person from all eternity. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, the Son, so I have loved you. Perfect love casts out fear. So I have loved you. And then he says, so abide in my love. My perfect, divine, eternal, dying, blood-paying love. If we drink deeply from this great love with which we have been loved, then we can put on love. 1 John 4, 11 and 12. I, I'm sorry for all the scripture if, if you ever should say such a thing. Uh, <laughs> But there is so much. I had to weed out a dozens of scriptures that all apply and say the things. And again, the scripture is rife with it. But, but it says it so well. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, then God abides in us. It's the very nature of God and his love is perfected in us which is where he is driving, that we would be perfected in his love, that we would live in that sense of it, the confidence of it, the experience of it, that he has loved me and, and I am secure in that love. I am complete in that love. I am strong in that love, right? That I abide in that love. 
I live in it. I die in it. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That we would abide in that love, but also that, that it would not just be that thing which, you know, that is for me, but I am blessed to be a blessing. I'm a conduit of that love to others. If God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. You will say to me, and I know that you will, you'll say to me, Robert, 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 practically speaking, though, how are we supposed to do that? You know, part of me wants to say, really? <laughs> like, the, thing, see, the thing is, we, we know, you know, what we need is the power and the vision and the passion to live it. And that is in the fullness of his spirit and the first fruit thereof as we abide in his love and it, and it flows over and through us. He says this in John 13, 34, a new commandment I'm given to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. So again, he says it over and over again. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his church. And here he says it and elsewhere he says it, the same thing, that we should love one another just as I have loved you. So how has he loved us? That's how you're supposed to do it. How are we supposed to love, Robert? Well, just as he loved you. How did he love you? It would be very productive to sit down and make such a list. How has he loved you? How is he loving you every day? Right? And a lot of it is the list that's right here because this is love. Here is, you know, love, love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It forgives. Right? Love is not rude. It's not proud. It's humble and it's gentle. Right? Love, we know what love is. Look at your spouse. Look at your children. You know what love is. What you need is the vision and the grace to be loving, to love those who God calls all we, if we have been loved like this, not to love like this. How have you experienced the love of Christ? Daily, he shows us all of these qualities, this verses 12 and 13, you know, kindness and compassion and humility. Oh, how patient he is with us day by day. Is he not patient with you? So we are so dull and slow, sometimes just downright stupid. You know, we are repetitive. We are, we continue to be the ones who are unlovely as often or not. And you say, how can I love my spouse, right? You're so unlovable sometimes, right? You know, my wife says this every day. She's just wrestling with it. Lord Jesus, How? He is patient, and he bears with us, and he loves us not just for what we are, but with a great love that he has set upon us, determining that he will be the power that makes us even more and better, that he will sanctify us as his bride and brings us. As you read Ephesians 5, and he calls the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and then he talks about how he, how he cleanses her and how he loves her and how he purifies her and how he prepares her to present her to himself. Love your spouse in a way that you are going to be part of the process to present them to Christ more holy because of the way you have loved and served and been patient and forgiven and given and poured yourself out and laid yourself down. Love, he says, I loved her. So I laid myself down for her. 
Love is essentially selflessness. Delighting in the joy of others. Giving itself away. To put the needs of others before their own. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love. This is how you know. This is what it looks like. What what does love look like? How do I know love when I see it? This is how we know love. He laid down his life for us. And we, husbands, wives, children, friends, down the pew, round the corner, next cubicle, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We love because he first loved us. God's love has been poured. I wanted to bring for the illustration as we think about this and and where this love comes from that, that I need to give to you and to my wife and to my children. And I, I want to imagine, and I'm just, you know, it's new carpet. So, But I wanted to put a table with a glass on it and a big pitcher of water and say, you know, the glass is your soul, right? And, and, and the love of God, Romans 5, verses, verse 5, God's love has been poured out, poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And you can imagine this infinite, eternal, everlasting sea of love that he pours out, he says, into our souls. You can see the glass fill and just begin to, you know, until everything around it becomes saturated, right? This is the love of God poured out, that we would love one another, that we would, but we have to be so full of the experience of that love. That's why he says, as, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. Because it is the secret to a life crowned with love as the crowning virtue that is poured out unto others. Tiram Bar says this. We'll close with this. We are to seek to demonstrate in our lives the perfect love that has existed between the Father and the Son through all eternity. It is the reality of love in our lives which will be part, or which will be one of the most powerful means of people in the world seeing the beauty of the message of Christ. It is our witness. By our love, people will know that the Father has sent the Son into the world. By our love for one another, people will know that we are loved. Do people know that you're loved by the way that you love? Oh, may it be so. May you experience the love of God to that depth that everything around you becomes saturated with it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love and mercy toward us. The great love with which you have loved us from eternity past, set upon us and purchased in the very blood of your Son. Oh, would you write it deep in the deep places of our souls that we might abide in it, live in it, dwell in it, stand in it, find our strength in it, that we ourselves may be poured out on behalf of others. For we ask and pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.